Thank you, Dallas. Appreciate it, brother. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here this beginning of Thanksgiving week, and uh, hope you're enjoying the nice, cool weather. How many of you got stuck on the way because you couldn't find your way through the Route 66 marathon? Okay. So, yeah, it's the Route 66 marathon, and there's a lot of folks there. Can we get the... There we go. The BA was clear. They don't run on the BA. I'm glad of that. But if you get off at the wrong exit, you're going to get stuck too, so... Uh, you definitely have to navigate. So, I remember a few years back, Hannah told me she did. It wasn't was it the Route 66 marathon? What mar- was it? The Route 66? Okay, and she did it and she completed it. And then she said afterwards, "I'll never do it again." <laughs> I don't know why she ever did it in the first place. So. You know, I often think in sports analogies. Those of you who've heard me preach before know that that's true. And this week, thinking about our theme for today, once again. I went to my very deep well of sports illustrations, and I was able to relate some of that to what I want to look at today. When you know someone who is a very big-time sports fan, which I want to remind you, fan is short for fanatic, right? But if they're a fan, college or pro or otherwise, it's not hard to get them talking about their favorite teams. Sometimes it's hard to get them to stop talking about them. Sometimes you don't even need to get them to talk about it. They'll bring it up, their team or the latest game, they'll kind of just bring it up automatically. Sports fans will do some crazy things, all in the name of love and praise for their team. For example, how about these folks? They're cheering for their team. I think that's Arizona State. And then you have these folks who are behind the backboard while the free throw shooter is shooting, and they're trying to distract him. That would be distracting to me, I think, seeing those two really kind of creepy-looking horse heads and then the dog head on the guy. That's kind of creepy. And then you have this one. This is Duke, and they're putting some kind of hex on on probably the free-throw shooter, and I guess that's appropriate since their nickname is the Blue Devils, so I guess that would be right. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, Jim Grinnell was gone. He was in Minnesota, and he got to go to the Vikings game, and Jim's a major Minnesota fan as evidenced by the things that we see on the screen here. There's Jim at, his, at the Vikings game just a few weeks ago. That's why he usually wears sh- at least short sleeve shirts that, have, uh, that cover that much to cover up his tats, his Vikings and his, uh, his NFL hat. But, but uh, it's good to know how buff Jim really is. So, <laughs> Of course, this isn't limited to sports, is it? When we think of something or we think of someone who is great or wonderful or fun, we sometimes have an almost instinctive need to praise that person or that thing to others and to get others to recognize how great that thing or that person is. It could be a movie. For example, it might be, gee, have you seen the latest Marvel movie? It's so good, you ought to see it too. Right, Faith? Isn't that what you usually say with Marvel movies? Yeah, there you go. Or it could be a book. I read this great book on prayer. It really impacted me. I can lend it to you because you know what? I think you'll really like it too. It could be your sports team. Wow, did you see those, uh, did you see Oklahoma State upset West Virginia yesterday? They pulled it out, you know? It's an interesting phenomenon if you think about it. When our imaginations are captured by something, we almost can't help doing this. We have to praise it. We have to commend it to someone else. 
We're going to look at this further in just a moment. But first, let me start by mentioning a book to you. It's called, quite simply, Prayer, and it's by Timothy Keller. It's a helpful book for those of us, like myself, who might be seeking to improve and enliven my prayer life. I want to start with mentioning this book because I'll be highlighting some of the ideas that are in this book this morning, as well as quoting this book directly, and I want to give appropriate credit. And you'll see how that, even that, applies to what we're going to look at here this morning, giving appropriate credit. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote that we love to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. Did you ever think about that? I think that's true. You love or enjoy someone or something so much that for the enjoyment to be completely fulfilled, you almost are compelled to express praise to or praise about that person or thing. Because without sharing that praise, your enjoyment is not complete in some way. Lewis writes that it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as of course they usually are. In his book, Keller relates that to our praise of God. He writes that we can't merely believe in our minds that God is loving or wise or all-powerful. He writes we must praise God or live in unreality and spiritual poverty. We must praise him for those things and praise him to others if we are to move beyond abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. Learning to praise, then, changes us. You know, that's what I want in my relationship with God. I don't just want abstract knowledge. Though knowledge is not unimportant, let me be clear to emphasize that. After all, the Apostle Paul wrote, I want to know him. He also wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I thank God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus that by him you were enriched in everything in all speech and in all knowledge. And he wrote to the Ephesians, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So we see that knowledge of him is an important thing. But I want my ongoing relationship with my maker to be heart-changing, not just knowledge increasing. One of the tools that God uses to do that in us is praise. And his word shows us how to praise and how our hearts can be changed in that. Now, I'm a thinker. Those of you who spent much time around me know that I think about stuff. Sometimes I think about stupid stuff. Most of the time I think about important stuff. Chuck Farah, you remember Chuck, many of you do, he said to me more than 35 years ago, and this was the same day that he prophesied over me that I have the gift of skepticism. <laughs> and I'll tell you about that some other time. But he said to me that I'm ruled a good deal of the time by my mind. But then he referred me to Joshua 1.8, and Chuck called that a higher way than being ruled by my mind only. And Joshua 1.8 says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Be care meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So the book of the law refers to God's word. And as I meditate on God's word day and night, that doesn't mean just knowing it. 
But that means allowing it to penetrate my mind, to penetrate my spirit, to penetrate my emotions, to penetrate my whole being. And as I meditate on it, it will reveal to me not just his commands, not just the imperatives about how to live for him, but it will reveal to me his character, his love, his mercy, his attributes. It will cause me to praise because I will see him for who he is. Since that day in the early 1980s, this has been a guiding principle in my life, and it's impacted the person that I have become in Christ. It's truly been heart-changing. Lewis, C.S. Lewis noted that people with the humblest, fullest minds are the ones who praised most. And then he said the people that he called the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents are the ones who praised least. I don't want to be among the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents. So why does praise and adoration of the King of Kings have such an effect on us? Well, there are essentially three kinds of prayer. And we won't take a lot of time with this this morning except to relate it to our theme today. First of all, there's what we're talking about. There's praise, there's adoration. That's a kind of prayer. And that's the one that we seem to do less, at least when it comes to our personal prayer life. I mean, we spend 30 minutes or so in worship here in the service, but in our personal prayer life, that seems to be the one we do the least. Another kind of prayer is confession. That's what we do when we're convicted of sin. But the kind of prayer that we practice the most, and sometimes almost exclusively, is supplication or petition, asking God to act in the things that we want or need or want for others. Now, none of these kinds of prayer are bad. They're all good. They're all supposed to be part of our prayer life. It's just that sometimes our prayer life may be just a little bit out of balance. I pray supplications, petitions for so many of you on a regular basis. I confess my own sins to the Lord daily. But in my private prayer life, I seldom praise as part of my prayers. I praise here on Sunday mornings. Again, I'm glad we have the opportunity to praise and magnify the Lord together each week. And this too is part of my prayer life. But consider this. Praise is the kind of prayer that most directly develops our love for God. Augustine said that what we love is basically what we are. Think about that. He wrote this in his commentary on 1 John. Such is each one as is his love. Our most fundamental identity and how we most fundamentally live our lives is a function of what we love. Augustine taught that all people seek happiness. Because of that, we attach ourselves to those things or those people that will make us happy, don't we? We just do that naturally. We don't even have to be encouraged to do that. Some of those things might even be good things. Our families, our spouses, our children, our ministries, the things we do for God, those are all good things. So some of what or some of whom we love are not necessarily bad things. Of course, there are things we love that might sometimes include things that are toxic to our souls, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. Even the good things that we look to for the purpose of making us happy, though not bad in and of themselves, they're just inadequate. They're just inadequate. They'll never be enough because our sin nature is still at war within us and we mistake those things that we think will make us happy. 
So the ultimate reason for our misery and our unhappiness or lack of fulfillment is that God is not first. He's not ultimate in our lives. I remember saying to my daughters when they were young, and I've said this to some of our TCF young people too, that the only thing that I really cared about, the absolute essential in the man that they would marry is that he loves Jesus more than he loves them. I knew that if this was true, this man would be a good husband, he would be a good father. If he was a ditch digger who really loved the Lord more than he loved my daughter, and he was not a successful doctor or lawyer or businessman, I'd still be okay with him because I knew that if he truly loved Jesus more than my daughter, he couldn't help but treat her right. He couldn't help but love her with an agape love. Augustine is famous for this prayer from his classic book, Confessions. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This idea has impacted me tremendously throughout my Christian life, and it's still something God is working in me to this very day. If I love anything or anyone more than God, I will crush that person or that thing under the weight of my own expectations, and eventually it will break my heart. None of the things we love, even the good things, even the godly things can fully live up to our expectations or meet our needs for love and satisfaction. My wonderful wife of 40 years is one of God's richest blessings in my life, and I absolutely love being with her, and she brings me great joy when I have time with her. But she's not ultimate. She's not ultimate. There are many individuals in this church that I have a deep relationship. I love deeply. I find great joy in the time that I spend with these people. But again, they are not ultimate. They cannot be. And I cannot allow them to become that in my life. I will crush them under my expectations and that will break my heart. Augustine wrote, Wherever the soul of man turns, unless towards God, it cleaves to sorrow. Even though the things outside God and outside itself to which it cleaves may be things of beauty. Our ultimate loves make up our identity. And God means for our identity to be only and exclusively in Christ. Everything else, all the other good things in our lives, are gifts of his love toward us but they were never meant to capture our hearts the way that he is. Of course, this is true of all of us. This is true of those of us who are his children, those of us who are redeemed by his sacrifice and saving grace. Our character is absolutely shaped by what or whom we love and what or whom we love supremely. But we see this at work in our society too. What our society loves collectively shapes our culture. Again, thinking of Augustine's ideas and this one from his City of God, he believed that societies are the mutual association of individuals united by what they love in common. Our society today in our world loves personal pleasure. They love what we've talked about before, radical autonomy and self above all else. As a result, what do we see? We see the destruction of lives. We see the coarsening of our culture. 
We see the incredible division between races and political views, all contributing in many ways to the downhill slide of our society. Just as we saw a moment ago what this does with us as individual believers in Christ, these twisted ultimate loves can only lead to those loves, those ideas of happiness being crushed by the expectations of those who believe that they can find joy and fulfillment in these things. They will never measure up. It's true of our culture collectively, and it's true of those of us who are in Christ. Think about this. To effect the most significant and profound change, we must change what we worship and adore. Let me say that again. To effect the most significant and profound change, we must change what we worship and adore. When we worship and adore selfish pleasure or radical autonomy or anything else, even good things, we will be changed in ways that are destructive. But when God is praised, when God is adored, when God is first, when he is worshipped as our ultimate, it changes us in ways that will eventually bring us greater joy in him. Keller writes that thinking, arguments, and beliefs are crucial as means of moving the heart, but ultimately we are what we adore. What we are, what we are, what captures our imagination, what leads us to praise and compel others to praise it. Our inordinate anger, anxiety, and discouragement result from disordered loves. Our relational problems result from disordered loves and our social and cultural problems as well. It's almost so obvious that we don't even need to mention it, but we do because we forget it, don't we? How can we change our inner being? How can we change the structure of our personality? One way we can do that is by worshiping and adoring the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who made us. We must grow in loving God above all else, and we must seek him first and foremost in everything. We see this in Matthew 6.33, which says what? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's cultivated by knowing who he is as his word reveals him to be, and it's grown in us by worship and praise. Now, I've usually thought of, maybe some of you are the same way, of praise and thanksgiving as being two different kinds of prayer. And of course, there are important differences between praise and thanksgiving, but in a sense, think about this, thanksgiving is almost a subcategory of praise. We see this in some of our worship and prayer here that we do at TCF. We see it in the Word of God. Thanksgiving is praising God for what He has done and what He has given and what He has accomplished. Praise is primarily worshiping God for who He is in and of Himself. So we see, for example, we lost our screens there. Okay, try it again. There we go. We see, for example, in uh, Psalm 135, which calls us to praise the Lord. The first three verses of Psalm 135 sound like this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. And then the first three verses of Psalm 136, which is primarily a psalm of thanks, read like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And those of you who know that psalm know that there's a statement, and then there's his steadfast love endures forever. And the whole psalm goes on that way. So Psalm 135 goes on to praise God for delivering Egypt, or delivering Israel from Egyptian slavery. And Psalm 136 goes on to thank God in quite a bit of detail for his love and his goodness toward us. But thanksgiving for a blessing in our lives, think about this, it automatically points our thinking to the attributes and loving purposes of the God who has done the blessing. Doesn't it? The one who's given us the good gifts. That's true of us just in life. Somebody gives you a good gift and you have that gift on your shelf or you wear it or you play with it or whatever the gift is, doesn't it sometimes make you think of that person? Praise for his love and goodness also points beyond that to the concrete examples of his goodness in our lives. So thanks and praise are not totally and completely synonymous. They're not totally interchangeable. But they are very closely connected in a way that we need to notice in a way that we want to remember. I think it's interesting that when bad things happen to us, and most of us are there now, or have been at one time or the other, and if you haven't been, you will be. But when bad things happen to us, or bad things happen to the people we love, it prompts us, when we're in Christ, to pray prayers of petition and supplication for ourselves and for others, depending on the circumstances. And that's a good thing. We should pray for others, and it's okay to pray for ourselves. But have you ever thought about when good things happen, why does it not prompt us to thanks and praise the same way bad things prompt us to cry out to God for relief? It doesn't with me. So I, maybe I shouldn't say us. Maybe I should just own this and allow you to decide whether this is true of you or not. Our occasional or sometimes maybe our often lack of thanksgiving and praise and gratitude is a bigger deal than we might make it out to be. Let me read a passage of Scripture that we wouldn't associate with this theme at all today, except for three little words. This is a, a passage of Scripture that we might think of often in our current cultural moment, and it describes the character of human sin. So I want you to look for the theme in this passage in the three little words that I'll highlight here in a moment. This is from Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it's always very easy for us to look outside the walls that we're in here now, okay, to our culture, to the world around us, and see the things that we read in this passage. We see godlessness. We see wickedness. We see people who suppress the truth by their very wickedness. We learn that people can't say there's no God because of creation's witness to his power and his creative acts. We see that not glorifying God as God, not allowing him to be God, 
to be large and in charge of our hearts and our lives can lead to futile and foolish thinking and dark hearts. This is all very sobering. These are all truths from this few verses in Romans. But there's three little words that are easy to miss here. They're almost a throwaway. In verse 21, after it says they knew God but didn't glorify God, it says another thing these people didn't do. Did you notice? Nor gave thanks. Nor gave thanks. They didn't thank God for what he's done. They didn't give credit where credit is due. In the context of godlessness and wickedness and darkened foolish hearts, not giving thanks may seem like a pretty small thing to get worked up about. But there it is, folks. There it is right in the middle of this passage. Can that be a part of the sinfulness of godless, wicked people who suppress the truth? Apparently so. If you believe what Paul wrote to the Romans, apparently so. Keller writes, why is plagiarism taken so seriously? And you remember I gave him credit early on, right? I gave him credit. It is claiming that you came up with an idea yourself when you did not. It is acknowledging, it is not acknowledging dependence, that you got the idea from someone else. Plagiarism is a refusal to give thanks and give credit and is therefore a form of theft. Did you ever think of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For what makes you different from anyone else? Why do you ha- what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So lack of thanksgiving, ingratitude, says we are living in the illusion that we are somehow spiritually self-sufficient, materially as well. It's taking credit for something that was a gift. Well, God didn't give that to me. I earned it. We see this in our culture so much that we can sometimes miss it in our own lives. And that's why I say we can't always just look outside here. We have to look in here. Isn't that what Scripture's for? It's not just to tell us about the state of the world. It's to tell us the state of our own hearts. Not giving thanks to God, giving Him credit for the good things in my life, says that I have the power and the ability to keep myself on the right path. Ingratitude believes that I know how best to live. This, my brothers and sisters, is a delusion. And it has the potential to be a dangerous delusion. We didn't create ourselves. Even my mom and dad did not create me. They were simply tools that God used to bring this soul in this body of Bill Sullivan into existence. We cannot keep our lives going. We cannot keep breathing. We cannot keep our heart beating even one second without God's power through Christ. And Scripture is very clear about this too. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son, referring to God the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. But Paul tells us in Romans that we hate that knowledge. And this is one of those truths that we suppress by our wickedness. Very few of us like the idea of being dependent on somebody else. We fight this reality from the time we're young through teenage years and uh, even before that. We fight it when we get older, and then it's even harder. 
because by then we've had the illusion of independence for so much of our adult life, and then we grow old and frail, and we can't any longer do the things that we always did for ourselves. As believers in relationship with each other, the reality is we're never independent. We're never independent. We're always interdependent with each other. But with God, we are completely, completely dependent for everything. People in our lives with whom we're interdependent are only God's tools, his instruments. So we also don't like the idea that we are completely dependent on God for everything. Why is that? Because if we really are dependent on him, then we're also obligated to him and we're not able to do what we want when we want. If we are really totally dependent on him, then we have to defer. We have to defer to his will because he's the one who gives us everything. This is why we see our culture becoming one of radical autonomy. Radical autonomy is the idea I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, I can be whatever I want to be, or even whatever I say I am because I've suppressed the knowledge of God. So most of us here who are in Christ don't fight this reality at the same level as much of the world around us does. Yet we often have a problem with thanks and praise. Praise is what Tim Keller calls the alpha prayer. It's the kind of prayer that motivates energizes and shapes the other kinds of prayer that we looked at earlier. One way we can grow in praise, which helps us grow in love of God, is to look at the various happiness and pleasures of our lives as what C.S. Lewis called shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility. Don't you like that? Shafts of the glory, a shaft of you know, light as it strikes our sensibility. That means we make every pleasure we have into a means of worshiping God, who is, after all, the giver of that good thing. This can include a lot of things. It doesn't have to be only about what we do here on Sunday mornings, though it certainly can include that. For example, a great sermon. Does it lead us to worship the giver of that gift? A wonderful time of singing praise. A meaningful encounter with a brother or sister in Christ. A special moment in time with our kids, with our spouses, with our grandkids, a triumph at our jobs, a fun time with a neighbor or friend, or how about a beautiful mountain vista, or delicious food, or a great book, or a great piece of music? How can we make everything good that makes us truly happy, everything that gives us moments of pleasure and joy, how can we make everything we experience like that into praise of the giver of that gift? This is a way that thanks and praise are so intertwined. When we're thankful, we think this. We might think, how good of God it is to give this to me, remembering that every good and perfect gift is from him. But as C.S. Lewis writes, Adoration or praise says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? Coruscations. That's a good word, huh? If you're like me, you never heard that word before. I didn't. Anybody ever heard coruscations before? I've never heard that word. So I had to look it up. But it's a cool word. It means a sudden gleam or flash of light. 
or a striking display of brilliance or wit. Okay? So let's paraphrase Lewis here, and let's not use the word coruscations. When we have a wonderful moment with someone we love, and we're inclined to thank God for it, we can and we should do so. But we can turn it to praise by thinking or saying something like this, wow, what an amazing and awesome God I serve, who just because of his love for me is able to create and allow me to enjoy a moment in time like this that brings me such pleasure and joy. I want my thanks and praise to be intertwined just like that, in such a deep way connected with each other. I want my enjoyment of his gifts to be so complete that I can't hold it in, that I have to praise him myself and praise him to others. Let that be our prayer this week especially as we're with family and friends and celebrating Thanksgiving. But also let that be the hallmark of our lives going forward and not just on Thanksgiving when after all we're reminded constantly to be thankful as we were here this morning. That not only thanks for what he's done be on our lips and in our minds, but praise for who he is. A God who's amazing in his grace. A God who's full of mercy. A God who's able and willing to give good gifts. A God who's redemptive in all of his purposes for us, including the ultimate reality that we have to look forward to of eternity with him. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for who you are and for what you have done. We are grateful, Lord God, that you have redeemed us. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, that every breath we take is a gift from you. Every heartbeat is a gift from you. Help us, Father God, to always turn our thanks into praise. And Lord, because of that, help us, Father God, to love you more, to praise you to others. May this be the hallmark of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.